Well, I'm excited to announce that we will be continuing in our study of the Gospel of John this morning, and that's something that I've been saying for over a year now. We have been examining the prelude to the Farewell Discourse in chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. That really is kind of the prelude, the part that leads into it. And in the prelude, Jesus does three things. This is what we've discovered so far. First, He washed His disciples' feet to model the the humble, selfless, sacrificing love they are called to display for one another in His steed after He returns to heaven. Second, He quietly uh, revealed His betrayer, Judas, so that the remaining 11 disciples would look back and remember His prophetic prediction and believe that He is indeed God. It's like He's giving them uh, a glimpse of the very, very near future, and when they go through that experience of betrayal in the garden, they'll be able to look back and say, remember that night when Jesus was betrayed in the garden, remember how Judas was there at the table. They'll be able to connect the dots, understand that He is omniscient, all-knowing, that He has that foreknowledge, and they would therefore attribute that to His deity. And third, Jesus commanded that Judas leave the upper room and proceed with his his pernicious plan to go ahead and go to the religious authorities and begin the process of, of, uh, you know, getting Jesus to the cross, if you will. In the next section, Jesus points to the glory that awaits him. He issues a new commandment, which is very interesting. He highlights the premier mark of those who are true disciples, and he, lastly, he predicts Peter's thrice or three-time denial. So we're going to pick it up at verses 31 and 32. John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32 is where we will begin. Verse 31 says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him at once. When Judas had gone out, because that's the reference at the very beginning of verse 31, when he had gone out, that's the reference to Judas. Judas is now left the building, he's out of the upper room, he's gone, he's on his way over to the Sanhedrin or temple. When he had gone out, Jesus begins his farewell discourse to the 11 remaining disciples or apostles. J.C. Ryle and R. Kent Hughes, and those are two commentaries by those men that I, that I use pretty regularly, they're pretty down-to-earth and pastoral, but those two men suggest that Jesus may have breathed a sigh of relief at this point because from this point forward in the narrative, his teachings flow very effortlessly and unhindered. And I think that's an interesting point. It's as if Judas, the adversary, who was indwelt by Satan at that moment, leaves and Jesus can now rest and minister to his disciples without that sort of obstructionist or person there. And Kent puts it like this, with Judas gone, it it seems that our Lord felt somewhat relieved. 
And I think he's coming up with that hypothesis by looking at the original language. And he says that the Lord may have felt somewhat relieved. And then he says this, which is a great insight. We have all experienced something like this. There have been times when we have been in the presence of someone who has not liked us or that we have uh, felt stifled by. But then that person left and the conversation that we were having with someone else there seems to flow effortlessly. Can anyone here relate to what he's saying there? You have been having a conversation with somebody, then that particular person shows up and gets into it, and you're like, eh, and you feel like you got to talk and walk on eggshells or be cautious with what you say, or it, it just there's a disturbance in, in what's happening because of the relationship you have with that person or lack thereof. Maybe that person is kind of adversarial toward you. But in any case, Kent Hughes says that that may have been what was playing out here. When Judas leaves... Jesus can relax, and he can speak very freely and transparently to his disciples. And, and you would think, well, well, Jesus is God. He doesn't have those kinds of emotions or feelings. Yeah, but Jesus is also 100% human being. He's also 100% man. So yeah, guess what? He had to deal with interesting relational dynamics and emotions, just as we do. And so I think that the, those two men are on to something there. With Judas gone, he's out of the room and the cross only hours away, Jesus' thoughts turned to the glory that He and the Father would soon receive. And I'll tell you what, if you were with us last week or you've been reading the narrative, you know how tense of a situation the last section was. With Judas there and, and, and Jesus warning the other disciples and, and exposing Judas in a sense by saying, one of you here will betray me and then passing him in the morsel to identify him. But I think only the Apostle John recognized that. But the dynamics of that, that part of the supper or the hors d'oeuvre section, very tense, very challenging, and kind of disturbing with Satan being in the room. So, and, and, and Jesus fully knowing what Judas who is someone whom he's ministered to and had fellowship with for three years and extended friendship with. The dynamics are there and the difficulty is there and we saw it in how the Lord was troubled. And so I'm amazed by how Jesus quickly shifts from that emotional state to and his focus off of that situation with Judas, which is a terrible situation, he shifts it immediately over to his coming reward. I mean, he, he's focused on the cross, he's focused on Judas and that relational breakdown. He's got Terrazzo, right? He's emotionally disturbed over it. He's heartbroken over this thing with Judas. And as soon as Judas leaves, he shifts his focus off of that terrible situation and puts it onto the prize. It just, it's amazing to me that he was able to do that. It's, it's like one minute he's filled with Terrazzo, emotional turmoil, but then the next minute, he's filled with joy. Hebrews 12, 2b. He endured the cross and went through that suffering for the joy that was set before him. Like in other words, he went through what he went through because there was joy at the end of that trail. There was a reward for him at the end of that terrible experience of being beaten, pulverized, crucified, murdered, killed, all of that, buried and he, he's literally going from focused on Judas, which is, a, which is a breakdown in relationship, to his reward within a few moments. And there's a lesson in this. 
Keeping our focus on the prize, future glory, will help to keep our joy up, even through difficult seasons. It's a matter of focus. If we stick to our circumstances and focus only on our circumstances and the bad things that are happening, we don't keep our eyes on heaven, we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we don't keep our eyes and our focus on our prize, our reward. Pretty hard to get through things, isn't it? We're pretty miserable. And we see in the text here Jesus going from one disaster to refocusing on glory here. And it's astonishing to me. Well, he's God, he can do that. Well, he's also a man. And, and there were probably times where he had to remind himself to do that in his, his own flesh. Not because he was a sinner, but because the flesh is flesh. Keeping our focus on the prize, future glory, will help to keep our joy full in difficult seasons. And we are to keep that focus at all times. Because when seasons aren't difficult and we're focused on all the wonderful things that are happening around us, we tend to forget about God. We must remember that life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, James 4.14. We must remember that, that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Focus on the prize, not on our circumstances, right? But we flip it, and then we flip out. We're miserable. We make ourselves miserable because we don't focus on the prize. We don't focus on the prize. And what is the prize? Is it heaven with golden streets and mansions and supper tables and playing football or whatever that dumb song that came out years ago? No, it's not that at all. It's God himself. God is our prize. God himself is our inheritance. So what do we focus on in the midst of our circumstances? We focus on God. We focus on his promises. We focus on what he has stored for us, our inheritance in heaven, which ultimately, in the ultimate sense, is not stuff, it is him. And the glory, and this is astonishing, the glory that Jesus was referring to here is associated with what we would perceive to be or call absolutely terrible, and it's his death on the cross. How could there possibly be glory for him and the Father through his death on the cross? That's astonishing to me. Because the cross, by all appearance, seems to be such a shameful, disastrous defeat for Jesus. Right? It just, it, the world and, and, and dark forces, Satan, thought of it as the defeat of this threat. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to purchase the salvation for all who believe in him. He destroyed the power of sin, Satan, death, and hell. And there are so many other accomplishments that come through his death on the cross, too many to list, and yet every one of these accomplishments results in his glory. And when Jesus died on the cross, 
the Father put many of His divine attributes on display, right? His holiness, His, his justness, his, his mercy. He puts His mercy on display. He puts, he puts His love. He puts His grace. He puts those key attributes of who He is. He puts those things on display through the destruction of Christ on the cross. And by displaying these divine attributes through the death of Jesus on the cross... What does the Father achieve for Himself? Glory. He brings glory to His name. He reveals who He is and what He has done and what He's about, His very heart, and thus brings Himself glory through that. J.C. Ryle's commentary on verses 31 and 32 is really, really good, far better than anything that I could conjure up. Listen to what he wrote. He says the. The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified His compassion, His patience, and His power. It showed Him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our steed, allowing Himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of His own blood. It showed Him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but in willingly submitting to such horrors and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive, when with a word he could have summoned his father's angels and been set free. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all of the world's transgressions and vanquishing Satan and despoiling him of his prey. Continues, the crucifixion brought glory to the Father. It glorified His wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, and love. It showed Him wise in providing a plan whereby He could be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It showed Him faithful in keeping His promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. It showed Him holy in requiring His law's demands to establish Uh, to be satisfied, pardon me, to be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed Him loving in providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, and such a friend for sinful man as His co-eternal Son. This is the glory that Jesus is focused on, the glory which will come through the cross. And the glory will be ascribed to He Himself, and to His Father. This is what He turns His focus to, His brutal death on the cross, but the glory that will come through it. He shift is focused. And I tell you, I'm not usually going to shift my focus to something that's going to be really, really hard, but produce a great result in the end. I'm looking for something much better than that, or much easier. Lord, teach us to shift our focus off of our circumstances and to turn our eyes onto our mediator, onto our redeemer, and to the great prize that we have stored for us in heaven, the Father himself for all eternity. Amen? It's much easier said than done. We have to remind ourselves in those moments. Let's look at 33. Jesus continues. He says, little children, (laughs) little children, yet a little while I am with you, You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
Now, glorification meant that Jesus would have to leave the disciples, right? If glorification comes through the cross, then he's going to have to leave their presence and go to the cross and die and leave their presence again. Glorification meant that Jesus would have to leave the disciples, and this is a truth that the disciples found very, very difficult to understand. And, and more than that, very, very difficult to accept. They had been with Jesus for three years straight. I, I, I don't know in the, in the Gospels of any uh, where it says that they were separated from him. I know at the very beginning that some of the guys went back to fishing, but after that, when Jesus chose them to follow, he goes to the boats and he tells Peter and Andrew to get off the boat. And at that point on, they're with him the whole time, like three years straight. You spend three years straight with somebody, it's, you're going to be pretty used to them, especially someone like Jesus who loves you so purely and has always your best interest in mind, always your sanctification in mind. And whenever he spoke about leaving, they had such great difficulty with that. What, what do you mean you're going to leave? You can't leave us. Who else will we go to? You have the words of life. Jesus, in this moment, as they're beginning to realize that he's, again, speaking about leaving. That's where the glory is. He's got to go to get it. Jesus knows this. And he can sense the, the anxiousness among them and the worry and concern. You flip over to chapter 14, he says, Let your hearts not be troubled. These guys were racked with anxiety at the thought of Jesus leaving. And knowing this about them, he speaks so tenderly to them like a loving parent. He uses the affectionate term technia which translates in English as little children. It's almost like a mother saying, it's okay, little children, or a father saying, it's okay, son. He uses this terminology, this affectionate terminology. And earlier he had told the Jews that they would seek him but be unable to find him because he would be in a place, he would soon be in a place where they have no access. We looked at that in John 7, 34. He was speaking of paradise or heaven. Why did the Jews not have access to Him? Because they refused to repent and believe in Him as Lord and Savior. And yet here Jesus tells the disciples that they will soon long for His visible presence because He will be gone to a place where they cannot follow. And yet unlike the unbelieving Jews, the disciples would see Jesus again, verse 36, after His resurrection for a period of time. And then he would leave again, he would ascend, and then they would see him when they enter into glory. You know, when uh, Rachel was pregnant with Ian, who was a, a surprise, <laughs> all three of them, yeah, <laughs> I'm here, I have to be a dad. When Rachel was, was pregnant with Ian, and she was just beautiful. She's thinking, I was then when I was pregnant, I'm not now. No, you are now, honey. Notice how I don't make eye contact with her. Look into the beast. She was beautiful. She is beautiful. I love her. When she was pregnant with Ian, we, we took Colin and Ryan to Disneyland. Huge mistake. We, we went into the, uh, the Mad Hatter. How many of you know what the Mad Hatter is? 
Satan incarnate, went into the Mad Hatter to get Mickey ears. Oh, glory to God, I have to wear these around here and look like a buffoon. This is what I'm thinking. Put them on, Dad. We go into the Mad Hatter to get Mickey ears because it's what you do. If you go to Disneyland and spend $18,000 to go there, you walk out with $20 Mickey ears. That's your prize. But when we went into the Mad Hatter, only three of us, actually, yeah, three of us total went in. You ever heard of the Left Behind series? Someone was left behind. And, and un, unbeknownst to us, little Ryan, you know, he just kind of stayed there while we went in. And uh, he decided to hang out, look around at all the, you know, all the colors and all the things. And he was, I think he was three years old at the time, so he was just a little guy. And right now he's probably getting embarrassed. But anyways, when we realized he wasn't with us, and after we scanned the entire store, because at that point, what do you do as a parent? You run throughout the store like a banshee, <laughs> yelling and screaming, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. And when we realized he wasn't with us and that he wasn't in the Mad Hatter, which is a scary place, our hearts sank, right? Your heart sank. How many of you are parents and you had a little child of yours wander away and you were just like, you're, you're, oh, you implode. And Rachel's running around. He's not with us. He's okay. It's Ryan. And she runs outside and begins to scan the crowd and, you know, get out here with me and help me find him. And we're looking around and, and off in the near distance, not too far, but off in the near distance, he's... He's standing over there kind of beside or below. I don't remember. I had to ask her for details, but he's standing next to this very large fiberglass whale. And, and there's little Ryan just standing there. Just, he's got tears in his eyes and the look of dread, you know. In that brief moment, little Ryan experienced a sense of lostness, a sense of abandonment and sheer terror. And, and he, he wept bitterly as he longed to be back in our visible presence, right? He wanted to be separated from the, his, the only two people he really knew besides his, you know, besides his brother who used to beat him up. And this is what I think the text this is what the disciples were about to experience, that same feeling and emotions that, that Ryan felt when he realized he was not with his parents. It's the same thing. Jesus is saying, little children, you're going to realize that I'm not with you. We've been together for three years. We love each other. You're going to realize that I'm not there, and you're going to be terrified. And Jesus just lovingly tells them, look, little children, I'm soon going to leave you. You need to prepare yourselves for my absence. And this is why he's been teaching them how to, to show love to one another through the foot washing, these things. Hey, look, in my steed, in my absence, yeah, you're going to be terrified for a moment, but you need to continue on and follow my examples and care for each other as I've cared for you. But they, there's a moment where they were going to realize Jesus is not here. You know, if you've suffered through the loss of a husband or wife, there comes a moment where you realize that person's not lying next to you in bed. It's sad, even terrifying. 
And that, that's, that's, that's what's going to happen here. I'm not going to be here, and you're going to realize it, and you're going to be scared. And so, so we can see the, the love and the nurturing care of Jesus to his disciples here. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. You're going to be like Ryan, <laughs> tripping. Verses 34 to 35, he gives them some instructions and a promise. It's almost as if he's trying to steer them away from that emotional impact they're going to experience toward remember the mission. Remember what you are to do, right? Focus. It's about focus. Don't focus on the circumstances of me being gone. Focus on what I've called you to do. 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he says this in 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And, and, and what's so interesting about this new commandment, that it, it really isn't new, is it? Loving each other is, is not technically a new commandment, nor is following God's pattern for loving each other a new commandment, right? The commandment to love has been around since the beginning. The guidelines and pattern are clearly articulated in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, for loving God and loving others, and, and that's literally how you can summarize the guidelines for love, right? It's love the Lord your God, and I would just say entirely, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, this, 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 these commands predate Jesus' words here by, you know, over, well over a thousand years. So, so this isn't technically a new command, is it? Well, what is new about it? How is it new? I mean, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, so it must have some kind of newness to it, Although we've been commanded to love each other, love God, to love from since the beginning. Well, there's many suggestions that have been made by various scholars and pastors, theologians. MacArthur suggests that Jesus presented a higher standard of love, one based on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the newness of it is, look, I'm going to love you in such a way that has not yet been seen, and it's, it's, it's a standard that kind of transcends or goes beyond what has been seen and experienced. That's what MacArthur suggests, so he could very well be true on that or right. Alexander McLaren suggests that this new commandment has to do with the formation of a new community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of the conqueror. The Apostle Paul describes this new community which we call the church in Galatians 3.28. He says this about it, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's the idea of a new community of people that are held together by the bond of love, Christ's love together, and they are, it's multi-ethnic, every tribe and tongue. So McLaren says that's what he's referring to here. Could be. R. Ken Hughes agrees with McLaren and notes how Jesus changed the object of love from neighbor, right? Because that's 
the original law says, love thy neighbor as you love yourself. He says, he says, note how Jesus changed the object of love from neighbor to one another. Now, there's a distinction between the two. It's not as if Jesus has overridden the existing law. He's further articulating what was actually intended through the original law of neighbor. But he did make a change. He goes from love thy neighbor to love one another, in a sense. You must understand the context. The Jews had watered down this Mosaic teaching, so much so that they thought that they could love whom they wanted and hate whom they wanted. <laughs> because of this, Israel became the narrowest, most bigoted, most intolerant nation on the face of the earth. We often think that Israel is despised in the world because they are the chosen race, but a lot of times the reason why they are despised is because how they've treated the rest of humanity. They have been bigoted. They have been sectarian. They have been isolated and thought of anything outside of the perimeter of Israel as dogs. That's the way they've been. It's a reality. It's a sad reality. You think of that Jewish mindset of we're better than everyone else. We don't want anything else to do with anyone because if we do that, then we'll be unclean and all these social issues and implications. And really at the bottom of the barrel, it's just hatred. It's just bigotry. And now you consider whom Jesus is sitting with and speaking to, Jews, right? The disciples are Jewish. Their upbringing is what we're talking about here. They had to be taught to love, or they had been, pardon me, they had been taught previously, they had been taught to love only those who were in close proximity to them, neighboring Jews. Not neighbors, neighboring Jews. Not Samaritans, because they're a weird hybrid. Only Jews. They had been taught, you love the Jewish brethren. That's your neighbor. Other Jews, not Samaritans, not Romans, not Greeks, not Scythians, barbarians, none of that. This is what they've been taught. And here, Jesus basically tells His disciples, who are Jewish, that have this mindset, no doubt. He tells them that this view is insufficient and that they must now love one another, which refers to every disciple regardless of their tribe and tongue. You can't love Jewish Christians more than Gentile Christians. All Christians, all real disciples are to be loved in the same manner. That is what is intended here through love one another. Not just one another, but all disciples. You guys are disciples. You love each other well, and you do what I do. You, you follow my example, but you do that same thing for every disciple, regardless of their tribe and tongue. Yeah, I know it's not going to be easy, but you're going to have to get over the bigotry because I'll have none of that in my church. So that's our Kent Hughes' angle, and he's playing off McLaren. It has to do with a new community held together by the bond of Christ's love, and it's every tribe and tongue, whomever the disciple is, love that disciple. Now, we're not talking about those who profess Christ and, and you know, are apostate. That's someone you evangelize. That's not someone you fellowship with. But you still have to love them. But there is a unique, special love among the brethren. And that's what Jesus is primarily focused on here. And the brethren can be anyone who professes 
Christ and shows the fruit and these sorts of things and agrees with the clear teachings of Scripture, not the Book of Mormon or anything else. R.C. Sproul comes at it from a completely different angle. He suggests that the immediate context determines what Jesus meant by new commandment. He wrote, perhaps Jesus was saying, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love each other the way that I have loved you. That is, that you not betray one another. In other words, Jesus asked His disciples to display steadfast love, love that stands up when push comes to shove. He drew attention to the betrayal by which He would actually be glorified. And in that context, He demanded from His disciples and all who would follow Him a love that has no place for treason. That's the context. What's my take on it? I think it's a combination of all of those interpretations. I, I, I think it's a little bit of each of them. It has to do with Jesus' example and higher standard of love. It has to do with the formation of a new community, which is based on love, not racial preferences or particular ethnicities. It has to do with loving one another or every disciple because in this new community, the church, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And it has to do with the immediate context, displaying steadfast love, the steadfast love of Jesus, which has no place for betrayal or treason. Jesus tells the disciples that if they love one another in this way as He loves them, it will have a profound effect on others. What profound effect? Jesus Himself says, by this all people will know that you are My disciples. In other words, loving one another like Jesus loves us communicates clearly to believers and unbelievers alike that we are followers of Jesus, that we are His disciples, that we belong to Him. In order to pull this off, we must understand and know how Jesus loves us. How are you going to love someone as Jesus loves you if you don't understand what He's done for you, if you don't understand how He loves you need the examples of Jesus, don't you? What has He been doing in this text so far, in the prelude? What, he, what example of love did He set for them in verses 1 through 17? He stoops down and washes their feet. There's an example. That's humble service. How did Jesus, what example did Jesus set for the disciples on the next day? He dies on a cross to pay for their sins. John 19, 30, 1 Peter 3, 18. These two examples, and there are so many more, but these two examples alone show that Jesus loves His disciples with a humble, selfless, sacrificial love. If we want folks to know that we are His disciples, that we belong to Jesus, we must love one another with the same humble, selfless, sacrificial love. It's the highest love, agape. John, the same guy who authored this book, wrote these epistles in, in, in his own epistles. And in, in, in 1 John 3.16, he says this, We must lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, just as Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. There it is. You are to love others as I love you. How? 
selflessly, in humility, and sacrificially. This is, this is, expositions of this love are given throughout the epistles. Even the dying to self is pointing to that kind of love for God and love for others. MacArthur wrote, The church may be orthodox in its doctrine and vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love each other. In fact, Jesus, and this is terrifying what he says, Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether or not someone is a Christian based on whether or not that person sincerely loves other Christians. Francis Schaeffer said something very similar in his landmark book, The Mark of the Christian, and he literally, through the book, identifies what that mark is, and it is love for the brethren. But he said this, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon His authority, He gives the world, the world, the fallen world, this is incredible, the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's a frightening thought. Oh, we're just supposed to evangelize the lost. That's, that's our role with them. No, they're... Jesus is actually appointed to the world the responsibility to judge whether or not we are actually in the faith by our actions. Unbelievers are testing us to see if we will love one another as Christ loves us. And when we fail, it is their job to point that out and say, you're not acting like a Christian. You certainly aren't behaving like a Christian. I don't think you're a Christian. Oh, yes, I am. Maybe not. The way we treat one another will be judged by outsiders, either positively or negatively. If we love each other like Jesus, they will know we belong to Him. That's positive. If we treat each other poorly like Judas, they will think that we do not belong to Jesus, and they will cast judgment against us, and they will be right in doing so. They're not wrong for saying, you're not a Christian. They are right. John again writes in 1 John 4, 8, oh, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He just helped us out and gave us an insight before we go make a darn fool of ourselves in front of unbelievers by mistreating each other. If we don't have love in our hearts and we do not display that love to other believers, we don't even know God. Guilty. This is what Jesus says. 
Those aren't my words. It's not even my interpretation. Did you know that Jesus gave the world a right to measure and judge us? And I, when I realized this once again, because I knew this before, but I, you know, I, I forget about the most important truths. It's my pattern. I remember all the simple ones that are inconclusive. Okay, it's great. It's the truth. It bears no relevance right now in this situation. But the ones that I need to remember, I, I forget very quickly, probably deliberately. And when I realized this once again, I was praising God that I got rid of Facebook because I have displayed so much hatred on that stupid social media site to other Christians. Made such a fool of myself. Man, if you cannot conduct yourself in a loving way on, that, on any social media, get rid of it. Some of you hardly use yours, so you're fine. But if you're like me, oh, I'm going to get him now. No, come back. Oh, man, it's already posted. I'll delete it. Maybe he didn't see it. And he writes back because he read it before I deleted it. How many times have I done that? Frightening. Look at 36 and 37. <laughs> Here's me. This is me right now, okay? I know it says Simon Peter, but I'm putting Phil Baker because this is now me. This is literally now me. I am in the narrative. I don't know if you guys knew this, but I was actually around back then. My name was Simon Peter in my past life. Now I'm preaching Hinduism or something, but this is me. 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Here's me. I will lay down my life for you. Yeah. Bottom line, Simon Peter was absolutely disturbed by Jesus' declaration that he was leaving them. And because of his, the fact that he's disturbed, and, and that's really all he heard was you're leaving, you're calling us little children, we're going to be frightened. This is all he hears. He stops there, misses the whole teaching on love, because he's still thinking he's leaving, he's leaving, he's leaving, he's leaving. He doesn't hear anything else. Totally misses the point of the Lord's profound teaching on love. And his anxious question back to the Lord reflects the disciples' continual inability and unwillingness to accept that Jesus was to leave them. And Jesus tries to reassure him. My paraphrase, it's okay, Simon Peter. You can't come with me now, but you will follow afterward. In other words, yeah, I'm going to leave, but you'll see me again. So, so focus on what I'm talking about. You guys need to love each other. And Peter, you're kind of the leader. And you really need to pay attention to this. And this is uh, literally Jesus' first prediction of Peter's martyrdom. Again, look at it. It says, but you will follow afterward. That is his first prediction of Peter's death that will come in a handful of years. The second is in John 21, 18 through 19. And yet, Jesus tries to reassure him, and he says, hey, you'll, you'll see me later on. There's a prediction of Peter's death. But 
Simon Peter wasn't satisfied with Jesus' answer, so he questioned him more sternly. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I want to go with you now. If you're leaving now, I want to go with you now. Forget about these other guys. I want to go. I know John's the one you love, but I love you and I'll die for you. Take me with you now. And he literally makes a, 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 a vow here, Phil Baker, I will lay down my life for you. Man, if you're going to go and die, because that's what it sounds like you're saying, well, I'll go with you and I'll die with you, and we'll just go to wherever you're going together. This is his vow. The parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels reveal just how vehement Peter's boast really was. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, 33. Again, but Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, exclamation point, Mark 14, 31. Again, but he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Give us liberty or death. Luke 22, 33. <laughs> These are the actual boasts and things that, that all of the gospel writers, they capture the totality of what Peter's doing here. It's not just, I'll go die with you. He's saying all sorts of boastful, crazy, out of sorts stuff, making all kinds of promises. He's writing checks he can't cash. His checks are going to be bouncing soon. Boing. They're rubberized. And, and not only that, following Peter's lead, the rest of the disciples, quote, uh, we're saying, quote, the same thing also. Mark 14, 31. So, so Peter's like, all of a sudden, he's the tough guy in the room. He's got cooler courage because he's probably drinking some really good wine. And he's all fired up. And all of a sudden, he gets everyone else all fired Yeah, we'll all go with him. We'll die for you. And, you know, and, and, all, and all of a sudden, it turns into this boast fest. I just told you guys to love each other. And now you're talking about kicking Rome's butt. And Peter still had some of this going on in him later when Jesus is arrested in the garden because he draws his sword and hits a guy right on top of the head. Sword slides off and cuts the dude's ear off. So Peter was still filled with all this manliness. Oh, I'll die for you. I'll kill for you. Oh, you know, I got you. I'm a soldier. Now, you're a buffoon. You're Phil Baker and friends. Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples were overestimating their own strength. <laughs> That's what they were doing. How many times do we do this? Oh, I got this. You ain't got it. Yeah, I do. Then afterwards, I didn't have it. I don't got it. And they were doing that big time here. In our last verse, verse 38, <laughs> Jesus lets Peter in on a little secret and bursts his prideful bubble. 30, 38, Jesus answered, <laughs> yeah, this, this is why you don't put God to the test. If you survive physically, you are humiliated, right? I mean, God has just struck down people who put him to the test, Ananias, Sapphira, just a lot of people. And, and if, if you actually survive and aren't killed, you, there's the high potential that you're going to be humiliated and filled with shame when you realize how stupid you are. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, if there were ever a place for the double emphatic, 
truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you, Peter, is of the highest importance. Listen closely. Peter's like, yes, Lord. I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus questions Peter's vow, and he predicts his three-time denial. Jesus also, it's not listed in John's gospel, it is over in Matthew. Jesus also predicted that the other disciples would deny and abandon him during his arrest. So at this point, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before, before the sun comes up, right as the sun is coming up, and the rest of you guys, you're going to run for the hills when they come to arrest me. Matthew 26, 31. And that is what the rooster crow is. It means sunrise. When do roosters crow? When do you want to go out with your daddy's shotgun and get some fried chicken? When the rooster on your farm starts making a bunch of noise when you're trying to sleep. My sister had a parakeet. It thought it was a rooster. She did, and it would just start exploding as soon as the sun started to peer through the mini blinds. And I would go in there and shake that cage. Die. Oh, it drove me crazy. Isn't he cute? No. That's what is meant here by rooster crow. That means sunrise. And guess what? Right before sunrise, when you would hear roosters crowing, Jesus' prediction came to pass. Peter denied him three times. John 18, 15 through 18, and 25 through 27. He did it three times. He was by a fire warming himself, and people who had seen him with Jesus earlier on that night or earlier in the morning, whenever it was, they saw him and they said, hey, look, weren't you with him? No, I, don't, I wasn't with him. And then again later, hey, I thought you were with Jesus earlier. We should arrest you too. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then the third time he's like, I, I don't even know the guy. I've never even met Jesus. He starts cursing on, throwing curses on himself. It was a disaster. And yet we should note that unlike Judas, who hung himself because of guilt, Peter became filled with contrition and he wept bitterly when he realized that he denied his Lord three times. He didn't run off and take his own life. He walked away into a quiet corner and wept bitterly. What have I done? You know, in that moment he realized a few hours ago, he told me I would do this, and I thought I had this. I thought I could handle it. He was right. Luke twenty-two, sixty-two. 62. Judas went down to his own place, Hades, but Peter was lovingly restored by Jesus. John 21, 15 through 17. And Peter went on to become a fearless preacher. A fearless preacher, Acts 2, 14 to 36. You can read his first sermon. It's, a, it's incredible. It's one of the best sermons ever. He, he goes on to become the primary leader of the early church. He, he goes on to author two New Testament epistles, that short letters that, that bear his name, First and Second Peter. Wonderful letters, edifying, building up the church. And tradition tells us that that Peter was executed 
later on by Nero for preaching the gospel. He didn't deny his Lord in that moment. Now he, he stood firm like Luther did in front of his adversaries. I can do no other. And he was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down, tradition says. He was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified right side up in the same manner that his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified. You want to crucify me? Great. I'm not going to do it in the same way that you did it to my Lord because I'm not worthy. In fact, tradition says that before Peter was nailed upside down to a cross, he watched his wife crucified. They ushered her out first, and their eyes locked. And he kind of whispers to her, stand firm. And she was nailed to a cross. And then he goes over and says, no, not right side up, upside down. How do you even do that? When Peter, when he breathed his last breath and closed his eyes in death, he found himself in the presence of his Lord in paradise. And the promise Jesus made in the upper room came true. You will follow me afterward. When little Ryan was reunited with his parents, us, his tears immediately dried up and his countenance changed. And yet the first words he heard from us were, You scared us half to death! Don't ever walk away from us again! When Peter was reunited with the visible presence of his beloved Lord and Savior, his tears immediately dried up. And his countenance changed. And the first words he heard from Jesus were, I told you you would come back to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Possibly the greatest gift that we as the body of Christ can give the world is to love each other. If we do that, those on the outside will desire to learn more about the gift of gifts, the King of Kings, Jesus Himself. May those of us who are in Christ, by grace through faith, honor our Lord and Savior by obeying the new commandment to love one another as He loves us humbly, selflessly, and sacrificially. If we do this, people will begin to take notice and ask questions. I've often pondered what we could do at this church to grow it numerically, and 
We've thought about doing things on the outside and canvassing neighborhoods and, and all of this stuff, and we've done some of these things. But I think the greatest thing that we can do is love each other. And when people see that, they'll want to know what's going on. And they'll show up. we love each other the way Christ loves us, people will begin to take notice and ask questions. They will. But we must remember what happened to Simon Peter. Like him, we may think we can do wonders for Christ. And like him, we may learn by bitter experience that we have no power and might at all. The failures of Peter and of the other disciples should cause us to fall to our knees and surrender, asking Christ to cause us to stand. Only by His power will we be able to love each other as He loves us. Only by His power will we remain loyal to Him. We have no strength. We have no power. It's only by Christ and in Christ that we can do anything. So we must seek Him and rely on Him and draw our strength from Him and pray to Him, asking Him daily to give us strength. We can do all things for Him. Everything that He's called us to do, especially to love one another and to be bold in those moments where boldness is required, to not shrink back like Peter did. There is a noticeable difference in Simon Peter before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and after. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will have power. You will have strength, it says in 1.8 of Acts. And you will be my witnesses throughout the world. Not just the proclamation of the gospel, which is how we witness, but through our love for one another. That is a profound, powerful witness. And if we fail to do that, it will be our judgment. The world will look at us and say, there's no way. We don't want that. So let's depend on Christ for strength, for His power. Let's call upon the Holy Spirit to give us power so that we can love each other well, rightly, as Christ loves us, sacrificially, selflessly, in much humility. That's what we're called to do. Let's do that.